0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church Podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. One of the biggest challenges to the Christian faith is the problem of evil. People have wrestled with this for a long time. The problem of evil, if there is a good, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing God... That microphone's also on. <laughs> If there's an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing God, who's good in every way, who hates evil, then why does evil exist? Why does God not eradicate it immediately? And it's often put in this sort of uh, series of statements. If God exists, then God must be omnipotent, omniscient, and morally perfect. Makes sense. Next, if God is omnipotent, then God has the power to eliminate all evil. If God is omniscient, then God knows where evil exists and therefore would know where to eradicate it. If God is morally perfect, then God has a desire to eliminate all evil, but evil exists. That's the challenge. And if evil exists and God exists, then perhaps God doesn't have the power to eliminate all evil, therefore not being God. Or doesn't know where evil exists, he just can't find it. He's limited in that way. Or he doesn't have the desire to eliminate all evil. Therefore, he's not all good. Therefore, we must conclude God doesn't exist. It's a formidable challenge. This is a real challenge. The problem of evil is a real difficulty. If you believe in a good God, you believe in the God of the Bible, this is an honest uh, struggle. And for many of us in this room, we've gone through and experienced some sort of evil or pain. We've seen it. We see it every day. We hear about it every day. And we wonder why. Why, if there's a God who could do something about this, has he not done something about it? And why me? Why has this happened to me? Now, in all fairness, the problem of evil is not just a challenge for Christianity. It's a a challenge for every worldview. Even atheists have to figure out how do they even come up with the idea of evil. If there's not an objective good and evil, then you can't really call anything good or evil. All worldviews have to deal with this. This is the human problem. This is part of the challenge. So this isn't just unique to Christianity, but it is a challenge for Christianity. But it's not like the Bible doesn't understand this question. It's not like the Bible doesn't recognize that that's a reality, that that's part of our lived experience, of this seeming disconnect of, if, if the God of the Bible is true, then why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? The Bible takes that honestly. It's, it's not like it's acting like you. it hopes you doesn't, don't ask that question, so because that, that just sort of blows up Christianity. No. The Bible actually addresses it and goes at it head on. In fact, it goes after it in perhaps the first book of the Bible ever written, which is the book of Job. Job is all about how we reconcile suffering and evil with a sovereign God. Now, Job, the events of Job's life happened probably somewhere shortly after the flood of Genesis 6 through 8. Uh, He's perhaps a contemporary with Abraham. There's some, some interesting connections between some of the place names and people that are listed in the book of Job and the genealogy that you find in Genesis chapter 10. And so we're not sure exactly when Job lived and when this happened, and we don't know when it was written down, but there are some interesting hints that make us think that this happens maybe at the time of Abraham, 2,000 years B.C., and maybe is actually the first part of Scripture actually written down. Because even though the book of Genesis covers events happened before Job, Genesis isn't written down until quite a bit later. So this is perhaps, Job is perhaps the very first book of the Bible written by a man who's one of the first uh, humans in the, Bible so and it's about suffering it's about this problem this problem of evil and suffering and pain so Christianity is somewhat unique in this in that it goes right at the question and it puts the question squarely on God's shoulders to reconcile and it gives us over the next eight weeks as we wrestle through this book it's going to give us a hard look at this together so I hope that today won't just be the only day that you're here but this will hopefully today's message will hook you in to see how the rest of the story plays out over the next eight weeks Because this is 42 chapters of wrestling with how do the painful experiences we see in the world, the evil that we see around us, how does that reconcile with the God that the Bible claims to hold out? And this story of Job is going to be a living example of people wrestling with that. It's not a new question. In fact, the Bible is the first ones to raise the question. And so Job will, this book, will answer that question of suffering and God's sovereignty I can't guarantee that after this series you're going to like the answer that God gives. Or the way that God gives the answer. But there is something here for us to mind out. There is something God wants us to know by reading through this book, studying through this book together. So we're going to look at Job chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. We're just going to get this opening opening act of the book of Job. So if you want to open in your Bibles to Job chapter 1, verse 1. And the title of today's message is God's Vindication in Job's Suffering. God's going to vindicate his own goodness and character through the suffering of Job in this really bizarre sort of way. We have five scenes in the story of Job 1.1 through Job 2.10. Okay? And here are the five scenes, and these scriptures will pop up on the screen as well. So if you want to look at them in your Bible, I think that's always best. But if you want to see them on the screens, they'll be in front of you. And hopefully the font's not too small. Sometimes it's too small. So here we go. Scene 1 in verses 1, 1 through 5, the book is going to open with this scene about the greatness of Job before God and man. Job is highly respected, high character. There's no one like him on the earth. He is, he is revered by both God and man. In scene 2, we're going to see the confidence of Job, a confidence of God in Job, and Satan's accusation against Job and God. In scene 3, verses 13 through 22, we're going to see the destruction of Job. We're going to see Job crushed in virtually every way and how God's going to be vindicated in Job's suffering, in Job's allegiance to God, even though being crushed. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, we're going to have what seems like a repeat of God will now sort of brag about Job again, said, you tried to take him out, but you couldn't. So the confirmed confidence of God in Job And Satan doubles down and makes another accusation. And then in chapter 5, we see the further destruction of Job and the double vindication of God in verses 7 through 10. Okay? There you go. You got kind of the framework. Let's now take it scene by scene. Let's look at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. The greatness of Job before man and God. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright One who feared God and turned away from evil. There was born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, "It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts." Thus Job did continually, continually worshiping, continually sacrificing. So here we get this introduction to Job, and Job, the Bible labors this that Job is not does not deserve any punishment. He is faithful. He is faithful, faithful, faithful in every way. Job is a non-Israelite says he's from the east. That would probably be east from the, 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 the place of God. So he's not known as an Israelite. In fact, he's pre-Israel. And yet he has this relationship with God. He's godly. He's almost like Melchizedek in Genesis. In fact, some people think that maybe Job and Melchizedek are the same guy. I don't know if that's true. But there's a, there's a resonant godliness that seems to sort of be unique to these men. And we get this horrible description. He's blameless. Number one, you got nothing. Nobody can say anything bad about Job. You accuse Job of something, and no one believes it because they know Job. So he's blameless. There's nothing bad to say about him. He's upright, which means you can only say good things about him. Not only can you not say bad things, but you only can say good things. The word upright there means straight, having the idea of integrity. This man is straight in all his dealings. He's not crooked in any way. He's straight in how he lives his life. He's straight in how he makes decisions. He is upright. He has integrity. The third characteristic of Job is that he fears God. This is used in wisdom literature all the time as the preferred way to live. This is how you live before God. The idea of fear is not like cowering, but the idea of respect, honor, and love, and reverence. So he fears God. He loves and worships God. And then he avoids evil wherever he can. He turns away from evil. So he's a repenter. He's quick to repent. It's not that he's sinless, but just that he is so quick when he recognizes sin to ask for forgiveness, to turn away from him. And when he sees evil coming, he'll avoid it. And he thinks about that for his kids, that maybe my kids have sinned. And so I'll offer that a sacrifice, and an atonement. And it's really fascinating that Job must have some sort of special relationship with God because he already knows that the right response to sin is a sacrifice. He knows that. He knows that sin must have an atonement. And so he worships God. He cares about God's holiness. He cares about sin. He cares about his family. We see in verses 2-5 through five that Job has a prosperous life. He's rich in possessions. Marked by sheep, camels, oxen, donkeys, servants. That's not really how we measure wealth today. But in the ancient world, there's not Bitcoin. <laughs> there's not you, you possessions. Your possessions, your, your livestock, your servants. This man is rich in possessions. But he's not just rich in possessions. He's rich in relationships. Notice, he's, he's got seven sons and three daughters. He's got a very vibrant family. And his sons and daughters seem to really love each other, don't they? They invite each other to parties. They hang out together all the time. They seem to live with this really rich relationship. He has his wife who makes a sweet, just a short cameo that we'll see towards the end of our message today. But it seems like there's a sweetness between he and his wife. And he has great honor in the region. In fact, later in Job 29, here's what he says as he reflects back. Before he lost everything, the kind of renown that he had. Job 29, 7 through 10 says, When I went to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew. So there's such a presence to Job that the young men go, all right, we've got to give this guy some space. The aged rose and stood in honor. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. We want to hear what Job has to say first. And the voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. So Job is respected in every way. It's not that they're afraid of him. They just have such high regard for this man. He is prominent. He's rich in possessions, rich in relationships, rich in honor, and rich in spirituality. He has a rich relationship with God. His kids love spending time together. It seems like Job has been very careful to parent his children very well in the discipline of the Lord. And he cares about their souls. He's offering sacrifice for them continually because he's caring for their souls. He's nurturing them, offering daily sacrifice. Even for sins that he's not even sure. like They may have committed sins. We have maybe committed sins we don't even know about. We just want to always be in a right relationship with God. So he's rich in possessions. Rich in relationships. Rich in spirituality. And what's interesting about Job. Is that prosperity doesn't cause him to become prideful and arrogant. But causes him to grow in humility, gratitude and devotion. Isn't that interesting? Could that be said of us? That good and prosperous times cause you to draw near to God even more. Or do possessions sometimes tempt you into pride and arrogance and self-reliance? Are you tempted to rely on yourself in good times and sort of forget God? Well, not with Job. Would greater prosperity cause you to be more engaged locally and in your church? It seems to cause Job to be more engaged in the life of his city, in the life of his community, in the life of his family. It's not like now he has more riches so he, makes, he takes more trips and more vacations, right? He's more invested even locally in his community. How would, how do you respond to prosperity? Does it drive you into deeper dependence and humility and gratitude before God? And what about us as a church? If God were to bless our church, I think God has blessed our church. With a lot of prosperity and good times, do we utilize that to fortify ourselves when the tough times come? Job seems to be doing that. He seems to be fortifying himself. He seems to be strengthening his relationship with God. And everything is a resource. Everything is an opportunity. He counts it all joy these laboring of Job's virtues is crucial to the whole book. Because the the challenge of the book is go, Job's suffering must be because he did something wrong. And right here in the first five verses, we just want to nail down clearly. Job is going to get something he doesn't deserve. He didn't do an action that then this was the appropriate reaction. So it's really important that we get a clear picture of Job. Job Job is, is remarkable in every way. Which brings us to scene two, verses six through 12 chapter one. Now there was a day, this is, this is a really bizarre scene right here. Now there was a day when the sons of God, which means angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And there is none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and possessions have increased in the land? Oh, I'm sorry, put around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has in your hand, only against him, do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So this bizarre scene, it's sort of like everyone has to check in before their day of work, right? Check in with the boss. God's clearly the sovereign here. The angels come in, and they're sort of like a roll call, it seems like. And Satan has to come. So Satan is not on God's equal here. It's not like there are two equal forces fighting over humanity. Satan is a servant. He's an angel. He's he's a lower creature. And he has to show up to God's court. God is sovereign over him. Now, this whole scene is going to be totally oblivious. Job will never know. No one will ever mention this scene to Job. Job is completely oblivious that this is what's happening in the heavenly realm. God never reveals it to him. No one ever tells him. So this is, complete, Job is completely unaware that this is what's happening. So just remember that, as Job is about to experience terrible atrocities, he doesn't have the information that we have. What's interesting here is that we have L-O-R-D. You notice that in your Bible? All capital letters, L-O-R-D. Whenever you see that in your Bible, that's referring to God's covenant name, Yahweh. Which is fascinating. Because God hasn't really necessarily given that name clearly yet. That isn't gonna come tell he is with Moses. So God has some sort of special relationship with Job. This is like a covenantal sort of relationship. This is this is God, this is the one true God. There aren't many gods, so there's one God. And everybody has to report to this one God in this heavenly scene. And Satan. Satan from Genesis chapter 3, that fallen angel who is God's enemy. Satan literally means accuser. He's an accuser. That's what the word Satan means. He's not God's equal. He's God's subordinate. And his only weapon is to accuse. He can't do anything without God's permission, without God's approval. But he can accuse, and he does. And then in verse 8, God brings up Job. Hey, Satan, I know you're looking for ways to sort of destroy my plan and my community, uh, to destroy my world, to destroy my plan, to destroy my glory, to destroy my image bearers. Check out this guy. And you're like, God, why are you bringing this up? Why are you giving him a target to shoot at? That seems like exactly what he's doing. It's like the thief comes into your house and you say the jewels are in the back room. Top, top shelf, closet, down to the right, Take a, open the door, it's right there on the top. Take it if you can. It's kind of that. Take it if you can. God has confidence in Job. God tells the thief where the diamond is and dares him to steal it. God knows what's in Job. Here's the thing. God knows what's in Job. This is not a wager as if like, let's see what happens. We're betting in our NCAA tournament bracket. we have no idea what's going on. No God knows. God knows what he's in job, what's in job and he knows that job will stand. God knows what's in job and places his own credibility on job's faith. God wagers not wagers. God places the glory of his great name on the faithfulness of job. And Satan challenges God. Now notice notice what God did. What did God affirm? That fourfold test, right? So this is God's judgment. God's judgment on him. God's opinion of Job is that Job is blameless, upright, fearing God and turning from evil. God knows what's in Job. God affirms. What people can see on the outside, God looks on the inside and says, That man is the same, inside and out. He's the same guy. So God knows what's in Job. God knows what he's put in Job. But Satan doesn't know what's in Job. And so Satan takes the bait, so to speak. Satan challenges God. And here's essentially the challenge. You've bought his loyalty. You just purchased his worship. Let's try to unpack a little bit of what Satan's doing here. Essentially, what Satan is saying is that nobody, even your best guy, nobody loves God for God. People only love God for his stuff. If you remove your stuff, your blessings, then he will hate you. Because no one loves God for God. He would turn on you like that. God, you're like a vending machine. If they plug in the right worship, they will get the pleasure that they want. He will stop worshiping you if you stop dispensing what he wants. He will curse you. You're just a dopamine hit to Job. If you take it away, if you give him pain, He'll go through the withdrawals of your blessings, and then he will curse you. He will hate you. These image bearers that you've made, they're just miserable robots that you've programmed. They're trained monkeys that push buttons to get a treat. They're miserable because you're miserable, God. You're not worthy of love, and they can't love unless you buy their love. No one would love God for God. No one would worship God for God. These are gold diggers. They're feigning love. They're just with you for your stuff. Your mighty man is a fraud. He's a fake. Because you, God, are a fraud and a fake. That's what's behind this. Satan is the eternal cynic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he can always find something bad in a situation. Oh, yeah, he's so godly, but that's because you set this up. Neither of you really love each other. You're just using each other. This idea of cynicism is really fundamentally satanic. Satan is the fundamental sin. Cynicism is satanic. And God gives Satan permission to do harm to Job. Steal him if you can. Let's see if you're right. And God wagers. God knows what's in Job and puts his confidence. I shouldn't use the term wager. He puts his confidence. He knows how this is going to go. This is a battle Satan will lose because he knows the battleground. The battleground is Job's life between God and Satan, and God knows. God knows he will defeat Satan in the suffering and faithfulness of Job. He knows he will because he knows what's in Job. So this is not God wondering what's in Job. This is God displaying his glory, that he is worthy of love. He is worthy of worship. And he does have image bearers that will love him for him, regardless of what they experience. This is the battleground. Which brings us to scene three. Maybe the saddest paragraph, one of the saddest paragraphs in the Bible. Just listen. Now now, remember, Job doesn't know what we've just read. He doesn't know scene two. He's just going about his day. Everything has worked out. He has done the same thing, and it has just been everything has worked out in his life. Everything has been a blessing. And he's been very careful to make sure that he always is worshipful and grateful and devoted for everything he's got. Okay? And so then, all of a sudden, a horrible day hits him. And here's what happened in scene three, the destruction of Job and the vindication of God. Verses 13 through 22. Now there was a day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans, that's another enemy group, fell upon them, took them, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone escaped to tell you. All of them, gone. Servants, dead. While he was still speaking, verse 16, there came another and said the fire of God fell from heaven, I don't know if it was a lightning strike, or a brass fire, or something, and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. They were trapped, and the fire took all of them, and I alone escaped to tell you, verse 17, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and struck them. And took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness, perhaps a tornado, struck the four corners of the house. The house failed catastrophically collapsed. It fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And then Job arose. This brought him to his knees. This leveled him. He arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, symbols of grief, fell on the ground, and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, gave, and Yahweh has taken her way. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We just sang that song. It's sort of an upbeat song, but it comes from this place. That song, those lines come from this place of your worst nightmare upon worst nightmare. In verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. God was right to put his confidence to stake his claim, to claim to stake his reputation on Job. The losses come from the outside in. I don't know if you noticed that. They come from the outside in. Getting ever increasingly closer with each servant that runs up. Oxen and and donkeys stolen, servants dead. Sheep dead and a fire and servants dead. Camels stolen, servants dead. Worst of all, a wind knocks the house where his kids are. None survive. Ten dead kids. Job has no explanation for this other than to lay it in the hands of God. He He gave, he took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It was all his to begin with. I try to remind myself of that of every day. And he's leveled. He's grieving. This is not stoicism. This is a deep from a place of deep pain. Job has been training for this his whole life. His training kicks in in emergency. His training kicks in and goes, I've been training as a worshiper every day of my life in prosperity and in pain. And now, when I need God, I'm gonna worship him. I'm gonna worship him in gain, I'm gonna worship him in loss. One commentator says this, Job sees only the hand of God in these events. No, he doesn't blame Satan. He says, no, this was all under God's authority. And it says it's not a sin to say that. It's not a sin to say God gave, God took away. He did not charge God with evil. But he said all of this ultimately happened under God's watch. And he's the only one that I can go to for answers. It is not wrong. That's what this passage is saying. He did not sin by saying this was in the hands of God. This commentator says, Job only sees the hand of God in these events. It never occurs to him to curse the desert brigards, to curse the frontier guards, to curse his stupid servants, now lying dead for their watchlessness. All of those secondary causes vanish. It was God who game. And it was the Lord who removed. And it was the Lord alone must make an explanation for these strange happenings. It will be God that Job appeals to. Job puts the whole matter in God's hands and then worships. And in that, Job passed the test, right? He couldn't steal him. Satan could not steal him. could not cause him to curse God. That was, that was what he said. Job's a fraud because you're a fraud. And in the end, here we have, no, God is not a fraud. God is worthy of worship. Even when it seems like he just inflicted something completely evil on Job. And at the same time, Job goes, no, I know my God. I am made in his image, I am made to worship him, and I will worship him. And Satan loses God's vindicated. Job passed the test, and Satan was wrong. Job still loves, worships, and trusts God. Was God right to state his reputation on Job? Yes, and Satan is defeated. And here's a hard question for us, is what about you and me? Would, would God be vindicated by our faith through suffering like this? could he say, hey, try to go steal that one. It'll backfire. You'll lose. Give them their best shot. I know what's in them. I know my spirit's in them. I know their love for me. And I know you can't touch it. Would we stand in the glory of God? Would we love God for God, even if he was the only thing we had left? In dust and ashes. Again, Job had trained his instincts. He had trained his instincts so that when the moment came, he was ready. And his training kicks in. He worships in prosperity, so that one day he can worship in destruction and sorrow. Now, this would be a great place to end the book. God won. Satan should leave. That's not what happens. We get to scene, chapter, scene number four, where we have seems like a repeat here: confidence of God and another accusation of Satan. Satan's not going to give up that easily. He's not convinced that Job is all that great chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came from among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down And You can almost kind of imagine a little smirk on his face, right? Uh, Beating up Job. That's what I've been doing. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Imagine if you will smirk on God's face. There's none like him, is there, on the earth? Guess what? He is still blameless and an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity. Though you incited me to destroy him without reason. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand. Only don't kill him. Spare his life. So again, we have this repeat. God brings up Job, points out that Job was wrong. And actually the way of saying this, this holds fast to his integrity. Verse 3 means you actually made him stronger. He, his faith, his integrity is now stronger because of what you did to him. That's kind of the idea. He still holds fast to it. Meaning that he, his, his resolve, his love for me, his worship for me has been strengthened through this. He doesn't feel that. He's still in pain. But his resolve has been strengthened. This backfired on you, Satan. God is worthy of worship even in pain and loss. And Job loves God even more for being God. And Satan responds. Here's what he says. You know what? Actually, Job is worse than I thought. He remains faithful because he actually only loves himself. What this revealed to me by losing all his stuff is he didn't care about his kids or his possessions. He really only cares about himself. That's why... He hasn't turned on you. He still doesn't love you. He's still not faithful to you. He's just way more selfish than I thought. Skin for skin. You make him hurt, then you'll see what he's really made of. Turns out he never really cared that much about his possessions or his kids, only himself. Make Job physically and inescapably miserable in a way that he can't escape, he can't forget, and he will despise you. And God says, okay, I will give you that leash. Satan is like a lion on a leash. He can only go as far as God allows him. So he can't do anything but accuse unless God permits him to do so. Which brings us to scene five the further destruction of Job and the vindication of God. Chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? That idea of like, is your is your resolve to love God even stronger? This makes no sense. His wife is heartbroken, understandably so. Goes, goes, what, what is wrong with you, Job? Curse God and die. Like, just get this over with. God clearly is against you. You did something. If you just curse him to his face, then all this would be over and we could just be done with all this pain. And here's what he says. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not say with his lips. What a remarkable statement. We love God for God, not just when he seems to be blessing us. Shall we not also assume that he's good, that he's in control, that He's he's got this under control, and that there, there must be something going on here that we don't see? And in all this God did not, for Job did not sin with his lips. And again, Job remains untouchable. His faith mean is intact. Now just think about the sores and the misery, his own flesh. So it's graphically portrayed when the writer describes him scraping off sores with bits of pottery in the city's dump. He has to go outside the town, it could be contagious. You don't want to be around this guy. So he just went from being the greatest man in the East to now living in a dump. Taking broken pots to scrape his oozing sores. Later on, Job describes the things that he's going through. He describes it even more detail. He includes things like aching and rotting bones, chapter 30. Dark and peeling skin. Wart-like eruptions, in chapter 7. He can't even eat, chapter 19. Fever, depression, insomnia, nightmares. Putrid breath. Failing vision. Rotting teeth. It's not surprising that in just a couple verses, his friends will come to sit and comfort him, and they won't recognize him. But is, that, is that Job? He looks awful. In Job 7, 4 and 5, it says, When I lie down, I say, when shall I rise? All the night long, I am full of tossing till the dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, and then flesh breaks out afresh. And then in verse 9, even his own wife, his own one flesh partner, so to speak, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That's what Satan says, right? Skin for sin. Let's take his own wife and make her accuser of him, his own one flesh partner. Will you still hold fast to your integrity? Even she challenges him at this point. Going, Are you really going to stick with God through this? And he has a worshipful response yet again a gentle challenge and corrective to his wife. He doesn't point the finger at her, get behind me, Satan, right? He doesn't do that. He goes, You're speaking like those who don't have faith, like the foolish women. It's the idea of going, yeah, This he's very gentle with her and appeals to her. And then we don't hear anything again from her, really, until all of a sudden he has more children at the end. So this does have sort of a happy ending. But that's not until 40 more chapters that the good ending comes. And the assumption is that she's she's not rebuked by God at the end. So it seems like maybe there is something sweet about this challenge from Job. That she actually holds on by that thread of faith as well. And he says, Let us worship God and gain in gain and loss, in good and evil. And the ultimate verdict here is that Job passes the test. Satan is wrong. Job still loves and worships and trusts God, and God is vindicated. God places his reputation on the faithfulness of Job in suffering, and God was right to do so. Job proves that God is valuable in and of himself and that God's image bearers are not gold diggers. They're not monkeys pushing a button getting a treat. No. They are made in his image to know and love him and it doesn't matter what he'll do. They will hold fast. Now there's a whole lot more to come. This book doesn't end here because it's about to get real hard. Sort of, There's sort of the adrenaline rush here at the beginning where Job kind of stands up is strong and then his friends are going to come and we're going to have 40 chapters of Job going I just want to die. I just want to die, I don't know what God's doing, I don't understand this, and you guys, some of you that have experienced loss, you can kind of like power through that initial moment, but then the funeral's over, the people leave, and you're still stuck with the loss, and it's like, where is God? Like, I was able to muster up faith in the short term, but then the marathon starts, and that is almost harder than the original loss, is living in the loss. And that's what we're gonna get for 40 chapters as we wrestle with God of why is there evil and suffering, why is there this injustice? What did I do wrong? I didn't do anything wrong. God, are you wrong? What what's going on here? So we have a few more weeks of wrestling with Job as he his immediate reflex, he passes the test. But there's still more tests to come. And it's really hard. Really, really hard. And some of you know that really, really deeply. Here's some applications. What do we learn about God? In this hard book, I mean, Job just goes right at it. Like, we're only 32 verses in, and we have a ton of questions, don't we? Like, this just, this just, like, picked the sore spot and pushed it really hard, right? Like, this is what we're talking about, God. This is why it's hard to believe in Christianity. This is why it's hard to believe in you. And Job just, like like a surgeon, just goes right into that. But here's what we learn about God. God is totally sovereign. He is the one true God, and he is totally sovereign. No one in the book will ever question God's sovereignty. No one will ever question his sovereignty, that God is in control of this. The questions will come in other ways. Is God good? Did you you do something wrong, Job? The questions will come from, but it never crosses anyone's mind to not think that God is ultimately at the top of this pyramid. That this is ultimately happening under his watch. That's never questioned in the book of Job. Secondly, we learn that God delights in Job. This is not a punishment. God delights in Job. In fact, it's because of Job's faithfulness that God points him out. That doesn't seem fair. I sure God doesn't point me out like that, right? But this, this is a point of pride for God. That God loves Job. God is confident in Job. God delights in Job. So suffering, we can't tie God's approval of us to prosperity. That if we're being prop- prosperous, therefore, God must like us. And if we're receiving suffering, God must not like us. Job blows that up. Job, in some sense, is suffering unjustly because God delights in him. Now that raises all a whole lot more questions. But we're just going to have to let's sit there. We can't get to all those in this message. But just know, God knows Job. God loves Job. God treasures Job. God is proud of Job. God knows what he's put in Job. Number four, God has purposes that man may never know about. Job will never be told what this was all for. God has purposes that he feels no obligation to tell us about. Probably because we wouldn't necessarily like them anyway. And who are we? Who are we to judge the purposes of God? That will be one of the questions. Now that's a hard truth to grab onto, but that's where Job is putting us. His God may have purposes that man may never know about. Satan may not even know about the purposes of God. It seems like Satan is falling for this. Number four, God ties his reputation to the faithfulness of his people. God is pleased to attach his name to his servant. So he says, this is my servant. And his faithfulness is a reflection of me. So you can go at him all you want because it doesn't just say something about Job. More importantly, it says something about me and my worthiness and my glory. That I am worthy of being loved and obeyed and followed even if they never get the good things they want from me. God loves to tie his relationship, his reputation in the world to the faithfulness of his people. Well, what do we learn about Satan? He's another major character. Satan will never appear for the rest of the book. Ultimately, Satan is a side character. He's a supporting character. He, He appears in the first episode and then he's totally gone. He's never brought up again because this is about Job and God. This is ultimately about Job and God. Satan plays a role. He's quickly defeated. He's vanquished. He's no longer a part of this. And now it's between Job and God from here on out. We learn that Satan is not sovereign. It's not like he and God are wrestling and we're going to hope that good wins over evil. It's not the Sith and the Jedi. And you're like, I don't know what's going to happen, right? No, God is sovereign. He's king. He's the ruler. And unlike God, Satan hates Job and hates God. Job means to destroy, or I'm sorry, Satan means to destroy Job and destroy God wherever he can. Job, or God in allowing difficulty to come on Job, is actually in a strange way to strengthen his faith, to display his faith. So what Satan means for evil, God always means for good. God never afflicts from his heart, as one of the prophets say. Joseph will say this to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, that many lives would be saved. And I think Job would go, yeah, amen. What Satan meant for evil in my life will only be used for good because there are people 4,000 years from now reading this story, wondering if they have the kind of faith, if God would give them this kind of faith. And Satan has plans to destroy that will always backfire. We haven't seen the ultimate backfire on this, but we see the, the initial one. Satan is wrong. Satan's wrong about Job and wrong about God. I love what Spurgeon said to his church when he was preaching this text. Here's what he says. This is back in the 1860s or so. He says this. He uses this illustration. Remember the story of a man who was about to go give $1,000 to his church? And the devil said to him, no, you can't afford it. Then the man said, well, I'll give $2,000 then. I will not be dictated this way, Satan. So Satan exclaimed, you're a fanatic. The man replied, okay, fine, I'll give $4,000. And Satan said, what will your wife say when you get home and you tell her that you just gave away $4,000? The man said, I'm going to give 8000 And if you don't mind where you're at, you will tempt me to give sixteen if you keep this up. So the devil was obliged to stop because the more he tempted him, the more he went the other way. Let it be so with us. If the devil would drive us to curse God, let us bless him all the more. And Satan will be wise enough to leave off tempting when he finds that the more he tempts to drive us the more we go in the opposite direction. That's what happens with Job. He just drives deeper into his God. And what do we learn about Job? Job has never taken God for granted. Job has been faithful, right? It's like one of those doomsday preppers, right? That's always putting stuff away in the stocks. You know, going, the bad day might come, right? And then the bad day comes, and let's get, look, Job has faith. He hasn't been just coasting. He's been preparing for this, like, What if my kids sin? What if some sort of consequence comes? Job has been storing up a deep relationship with God. He has been digging deep foundations. And they stand. And Job loves God for God. We see that here. At first, through prosperity, we didn't really know why Job loved God. There's lots of reasons to love God. What happens when there really is seemingly no reason to love God? Will you still love God? And Job loves God for God. And Job's faithfulness and suffering vindicates God before Satan's accusations. So we get this really bizarre story, this really bizarre opening, and we still have so much further to go. There's a man named Tim Challies who writes books and does blogs, and he released a blog just a couple weeks ago. And Tim Challies, pastor, blogger, writer, and he released this, and this not that long ago, his sudden, his his 20-year-old son died. They don't really even know why he just didn't wake up one morning. So. In the midst of this, this is coming from a man who, who gets suffering. And here's what he wrote. This is just a little story. It's a little bit longer, but I think he'll track with it. And I think it really I think it really connects with what we're seeing in these first few chapters of Job. Here's what he says, I want you to imagine, at least for a time, that the Lord would see fit to involve us in selecting the providences which we would receive from his hand. I want you to imagine that though one of his de- through one of his deputies, maybe an angel, he would approach us to ask how we would prefer to serve him. In other words, I want you to imagine that just for a while, he would choose to offshore his sovereignty and outsource it to us. We could pick the kind of life that he gives us. I expect it might go something like this. A day came when one of the Lord's angels appeared before a group of Christians who were worshiping together as a local church. He stood before them and said, The Lord has asked me to distribute some of the gifts of his providence, gifts that will equip you to serve others on his behalf. I heard you singing in your worship service, Take my life and let it be, and thought it, this would be a great time to take you up on that offering. So first of all, I've got the gift of generosity. Is there someone here who would like to serve the Lord through distributing vast sums of money? He glanced at the clipboard. He held it in his hands and added, I should point out that this gift comes with a great deal of cash, somewhere around 10 or $12 million to start with. Just about every hand shot, I would love that opportunity. The angel pointed out, Pointed at a couple people, and with smiles on their faces, they came forward to collect their gift. And now I've got some rare talents to distribute. Flipping through the pages, he said, I've got a towering intellect, great athleticism, and prime leadership ability. Who would like these? Once more, a great number of hands went up, and once more, a group of people approached the front of the room to receive what they had chosen. To each each the angel said, Take this and commit it to the glory of God and the good of his people. Each nodded solemnly as he took what was now theirs. Next, I've got high position. It seems that maybe someone here is destined for the corridors of power. Who would like to lead in this way? There are perhaps fewer hands that were raised this time, and still, but still a good many. And so it went through magnetic personality and preaching ability, musical talent, until there were just a few people who remained. A few people who, though they had raised their hands many times, still did not receive their gift yet their special calling from the Lord. Don't worry, I've got plenty left for each of you. And he looks at the next item on his left and says, "Quadriplegia." who would like this one? After an initial gasp of surprise, the people sat in silence, hands up their sides, eyes steadfastly fixed on the floor. No one wants this one? You've all heard of Johnny Erickson Tada, haven't you? Aren't you thankful for her, her ministry? Haven't you been blessed and inspired by her faith and her testimony? Hasn't her joy spurned you on in the trials that you face in life? Surely someone is willing to serve in the ways that she has. Every hand remained down. I guess I'll have to come back to that one. How about grievous loss? Who's willing to be bereaved so that you would be a blessing to other Christians when they endure loss? You guys know Elizabeth Elliot, right? Don't you know how much I know how much you love her story? Faithfulness through the martyrdom of her husband. Who is willing to lose a loved one and remain steadfast in your faith to reassure others that you love God not just for the good things he's given, but because he's so worthy of your love? And the room remained silent and still. Friends, listen, haven't you ever been comforted in your sorrows by someone who had endured that same sorrow? Weren't you thankful that God provided someone who truly understood your pain and could comfort you with the comfort that they received from the Lord? Aren't you willing, or even eager, to be that for someone else? Somewhere in the distance, a lawnmower sputtered to life, and there was no other sound except the occasional nervous call. The angel, perhaps a little sorrowful now, began to flip quickly through the sheets on his footwork. Infertility, widowhood, persecution, miscarriage. Will anyone take these? Will anyone accept these? From the back of the room, a voice finally broke out in the awkward silence. Do you have any of those rare talents or high positions? The reality of course, is that God does not ask what gifts of his providence we would receive from his hand, but he does hear us when we sing, take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee. He does take us at our word. When we sing all to Jesus, I surrender all to him. I freely give. He does listen and respond when we echo Jesus, when we say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He distributes the gifts of his providence in ways that further his causes and bless his people. And as we receive these from his hand, we can rest assured that in the life of the Christian, there are not two classes of providence, one good and one bad. Though some are easy and some are hard, all can be good because in some way they flow from his good fatherly hand. And in some way he can be consecrated. They can be used for his service for we are not our own but belong to him in body and in soul, in life and in death, in sorrow and in joy, and in the circumstances we would have chosen anyway, and the ones that we would have avoided at all costs. It falls to us to receive whatever he assigns, to receive it with trust in his goodness, and with confidence in his purposes, willing and eager to steward it all faithfully for the good of his beloved people and for the glory of his great name. just sounds exactly like Job's so how we receive from the Lord, Receive good from the Lord and not receive evil. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I know that's a very hard story, and that hits really close to home. I do think that is what Job is saying in these first two chapters. I do think that he would amen that story, which means we have all these tensions still, and especially on Resurrection Sunday. You're preaching on Job on Resurrection Sunday to a joyful day. Let me close with this. The book of Job does point to Jesus in some really remarkable ways. In 1 John 3, God says that the reason he sent his son, his servant, not his servant Job, but his servant Jesus, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And he destroyed the works of the devil by suffering and then resurrection. And we'll see in Job a suffering and a kind of resurrection. You see that Jesus is the ultimate righteous one that God points to at his baptism and says, this one is blameless, upright, fearing God and shunning evil. Satan, take your best shot. Satan, he's driven out into the wilderness and Jesus for 40 days is tormented by Satan in the wilderness and passes the test. It is Jesus who withstands the withering attacks of his supposed friends who charge him with evil. which is coming. It's Jesus stripped of everything that goes further than Job, actually dying in agony to provide atonement for his children. Job offered sacrifices for his children. Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice for God's children. There's a greater vindication of God that will come through his servant, his son, suffering. Job's defeat of Satan points to a greater destruction of Satan. Satan will not just be proven wrong, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he will have his head crushed. He will be vanquished. Job can endure, but the greater Job will conquer. Job himself, in the very middle of the book, catches a brief glimpse of this gospel. And this is 2,000 years before Jesus, probably. We get this glimpse of a redeemer. So Job is wrestling. And in chapter 19, he's wrestling with death in particular. He's been wrestling with it for a few chapters. Of just wanting to die. I just want to die. And then he gets to Job 19. I want you to see this. This is on the screen. Here's what he says. This is remarkable. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, dead, right? Yet in my flesh, resurrection, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall see, shall behold Him, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue Him, this Redeemer? And the root of the matter is found in him. Whoa. Job goes, the only answer to this is a person, a redeemer, who will reconcile me to God and who can redeem this mess. This hurts. I hate this. I want to die. But yet, through death, I'm going to see God because of a redeemer. There is a redeemer who is alive, who will rule and reign on this earth, and he will take me through death to resurrection so that I can see God that's exactly what Jesus offers in the gospel. Jesus walks the same road as Job, only worse, bearing the wrath of our sin, dying on the cross and rising again. And he lives. Jesus is risen. Jesus lives. The redeemer lives. And Job's going, I'm putting my hope in a redeemer that I cannot yet see. He's looking forward in the future to a redeemer who will take him through death to resurrection into the Into the throne room of God to see God. And all of this will then make sense. All of this will then be made right. All of this will be redeemed. A redeemer who will fix it. And he says the root of the matter is found in him. The answer to the problem of evil is not a reason or a why. It's a who. The answer to my problem is a person. A person that can bring me to God. So whatever suffering you're facing today or may face someday... Can you say with Job, My Redeemer lives. And I shall see God in my flesh because of Him. Again, the answer to the problem of evil isn't a big reason why. That wouldn't satisfy you anyway, but a person who suffered everything and rose again and can make sense of this in the end. A living Redeemer who brings resurrection and face-to-face contact with God, the root of the matter is found in Him. Are you preparing today to be able to say that when the worst comes. You can, because of the of today, the resurrection of Jesus. We often suffer, sometimes we understand, but we must always trust in God. He's worthy of our love and affection, and there is a redeemer who lives. God, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, is how we can know that there is an answer to the problem. Job looks forward to that day. We look backward to Calvary in an empty tomb. And you have the privilege today on April 9th, 2023 to look back on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the story of Job and trust in the Savior, whatever you're facing. Whatever you have faced, whatever you will face. The answer to the riddle of suffering and sovereignty is the character and work of the triune God expressed in Jesus. Look to him and live. Trust and be saved. And Job is going to show us the way. Let's pray. God, thank you for these two chapters and so much ground to cover, so many things that now sound harder. God, I pray that as we walk through this book, we just trust your word. We trust your word lays it out exactly as we need to hear it. And God, as we look at this man, this miserable man, God, I pray that we would, through his endurance and through his suffering, we might gain strength, that you are a God worthy of love. You are a God worthy of worship. And that there is a Redeemer who will bring a fix to all of this. And because of him, we can endure. And one day in our flesh, we will see God. We ask for the faith to do that, God. We ask for you to put in us what you put in Job. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.